Season two of Meet and Three is almost here. We're kicking off with a show all about football. I am excited, it's so much fun. <laughs> we'll tell you how to master the tailgating scene with help from some Atlanta chefs. The sky's the limit when it comes to tailgating. Yeah, do something that you, you can pull off without stressing yourself too much. Then we'll look at what's good and bad about players' diets, whether they're an NFL star or just made the JV team at their high school. And that's when I was told the first time, well, just take them to McDonald's and feed them feed Big Macs and milkshakes. There's a greater percentage of guys that have a, a, a clear focus on what they're putting in their body. You know, in SEC school, people are fans, but we also have to realize that they're kids. They're 18 to 22, 23-year-olds. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when season two drops. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today, my guest is Sana Javari Kadri. She is a queer food photographer and the founder of Diaspora Co., a spice collective working between Mumbai, India, and Oakland, California, towards a radically different spice trade dedicated to equity, sustainable agriculture, and decolonization. Her work is rooted in community, color, social justice, and food culture. Welcome to the show, Sana. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm so happy to have you as a guest today. I am so inspired by the work you do, you do, and the more I've been reading about you, the more excited I've been to, to talk to you. So it's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks. Well, you had such an all-star class on here. I listened to a few of the earlier show, and I was just like, oh, wow, this is big. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. It's um, yeah. It's you know lovely to be in my position, sitting across from so many cool people and hearing so many incredible yeah. stories. Um, so yeah, let's let's dive right in. I mean, we are going to talk about your work with Diaspora Co. But I would love to just hear a little bit more about you and your background. I know um, you grew up in Mumbai. Uh, what made you want to mm-hmm. leave and come to the United States? <laughs> Um, so my parents had actually come to grad school here at um, University of Michigan Ann Arbor, and then after their time here, they had moved to Berkeley. And so my whole childhood, my mom talked about Berkeley kind of like the promised land. Um, she actually, I think she asked my dad casually to marry her in the avocado aisle of Berkeley Bowl. Oh my God, um, that's like the most <laughs> California thing I've ever heard. Literally, like it's the most Bay Area. It's like peak time. Bay Area, yeah. <laughs> And so they were, you know, like, my mom was this raging feminist teaching architecture and women's studies and living in Berkeley. And so I spent my whole childhood hearing these stories about Berkeley in particular. Um, but then also, Mumbai in the 90s, I think especially when you grew up in the very strange sexist society that I did, which was in the sort of rising upper middle class where... In the 90s, India had just neoliberalized, which meant that we went from being pretty much a protectionist state to suddenly, um, like, watching capitalism flood our gates. Mm. Um, 
it also just meant that there was a lot of new money floating around. Um, and so a lot of my childhood was, I was raised on Nickelodeon and fruit roll-ups as like a very aspirational thing. <laughs> like if you had a cable that had Nickelodeon on it, you had made it. <laughs> um, and, and I thought of Taco Bell as like very elite American food product mm-hmm. um, because my, my aunt would bring it back for us from New Jersey when she visited and my brother and I would trade it on the playground all year. Um, so I, I really had a lot of like images in my mind of like America being where things are shiny and packaged and glorious. Um, but also, I didn't have a great childhood in Mumbai. I, I think a lot of it was to do with being clear and not fully understanding what that meant. Um, I remember that in third grade, kind of hugging and holding my best friend's hand at my all-girls school was like the highlight of my day and then I couldn't believe the next day that she held somebody else's hand. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of feeling stifled in my childhood in Mumbai and feeling like the feelings that I was feeling were not experienced by everybody else. Um, that being said, when I did come to India, the culture shock was pretty pretty heroic where I was like, oh, I When you came to Am- America? Oh, sorry, yes. Oh, that's when okay. I did come to the U.S., yeah. the culture shock was completely crazy where I thought that I was coming to this country that I had watched on TV and therefore totally understood. Right. Um, and that was obviously not the case. Like, I didn't really know what Kleenex was. Mm. Um, Taco like, Bell isn't like really that. our currency here. Taco Bell, yeah, <laughs> it's not like elite American cuisine. Yeah. Um, it's not the cutting edge of, yeah, American dining. Um, and on a, a side note, just to what you were saying, what was it like for you to uh, see the news that gay marriage is no longer illegal in India? It's been pretty emotional. It's been kind of an amazing week because of it. Yeah. Um, I think... Or not just gay I marriage, think, Just is it just any... I just, mean, homosexuality. Yeah, homosexuality. Just, yeah, yeah, it's expressing homosexuality. It's not so much marriage. It was more... It was a colonial law about gay sex in particular. Mm-hmm. Um and it's the same law that exists in a lot of colonies still. Um, and I actually stayed up late the night before the judgment um, listening to um, kind of a live reporting of it. Um, and then about 1 a.m. our time, PST, it was the, the justices basically overturned it. And I, I had my girlfriend and my dog asleep next to me and started to cry into my pillow for a bit. Mm. Um, I think it, I think expect to feel so much relief because I get here for the most part now I have I live in Oakland in the Bay Area living a pretty like fabulously gay life yeah um so I didn't fully recognize how much I wanted that validation um from where I go home to so I'm actually going back to India next Monday so two weeks from now um and I'm really excited to kind of what that's meant and like what what conversations that's changing around i mean especially with older folks because a lot of the young folks are just like oh yeah that's cool um and in the big cities so i'm excited to see what happens and yeah it's it's yeah that's it's really profound is there anyone that you're going to be seeing on your trip uh, when you go back to india that you weren't able to come out to that you think you're going to encounter this time and it's going to be a really different experience Oh, gosh. Um, on one hand, I have not come out to a lot of people, like, especially people who I have working relationships with. Um, you know, in India, already being a young woman doing business is 
very, very, very hard to be taken seriously. Um, I constantly get asked whether I'm, like, running my father's business or where my CFO is, like, or where my male CFO is, mm. um, or basically, like, where the boss is right. um, throughout this process. But Does that happen um, to the United States or just in India? It mostly happens in India, mm-hmm. honestly. I think here, well, I also operate, you know, in certain bubbles in the United States, um, between the Bay Area and New York. Um, and I think in India, for a while, I actually lied to every single farmer that I met about my age, and I usually pretended I had a husband. Mm-hmm. Um, because for those first interactions, like, I just didn't know how else to be taken seriously and to, like, seem like I came from exactly the same planet without completely alienating them. Right. Um, and so, I mean, the farmers that I work with currently, they have often asked me why I'm not married, why I don't have a husband. Um, and I have often, especially when we're, like, driving in the car together and we've, like, spent four days harvesting turmeric together, like, I really want to be like, actually, um, but for me, the safety bit has always been huge. But mm-hmm. I'm a young woman traveling to fairly rural parts of the country yeah um and that can be terrifying so i'm not sure who i would come out to that i haven't already because that doesn't feel safe yet Mm, until i know more how it is um but i did start doing this thing when i was on flight um and now looking back was a pretty dangerous thing where i would come out to the stranger sitting next to me um, and that kind of was a litmus test for it. This is a complete stranger that I'm just sitting next to. Like, Wait, you would just come out to people sitting next to you on, on planes? Yes. <laughs> like, just to see what would happen? Yeah, pretty much. How did it go, generally? <laughs> it was it was really odd. And I, this was at a time when I was taking, like, 14 flights in a three-week period. So it was just like, you know what, I'm on an airplane. I feel pretty safe, like... I can bail. They don't know who I am. What were you looking kind of for situation. in that experience? I was, I was trying to gauge. I was trying to gauge reactions. Mm. I was trying to understand because I've, I've been away from Mumbai. I mean, I visited a lot, but I haven't fully lived in Mumbai since I left eight years ago. So, and I, I came of age here in Italy mostly. So, I wanted to understand as a, as an adult what people take on this stuff was. Um, and, and the reactions were bizarre, honestly. Like, um, one I, dude, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one dude went like got really in his head. He was like, "Well, you know," cause, so his wife was sleeping next to him on the other side. I was on the aisle. He was in the middle, and he he was like, "Well, you know, my wife is probably going to be really upset with me that I talked to a woman while she was sleeping, like this whole plane ride. But now I can just tell her that you're gay, and then I won't be in trouble." <laughs> And that's I was like, so oh, weird. I'm glad that you got out of this change. Yeah, like that's your takeaway. <laughs> like that's what that. And then, and then that's like, like such so a dude thing mean? to say. <laughs> Literally. And then, and then he was like, so does that mean that your girlfriend gets jealous when you talk to other girls? And I was like, how about she just doesn't get jealous? Right. Like that, that's also a possibility, buddy. And he was like, no, not possible. All relationships have jealousy. And oh. um, I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there's just, like, like a lack of education there. going on there. <laughs> yeah, and then I, mean, I had another dude who, like, literally turned and stared at me, and he was just like, no, not possible. You are too beautiful. Oh, and right, because like, that's connected. Oh, <laughs> yeah, like, obviously, I'm, I have to be like, really ugly and not attractive to men in order to want to date women. 
I mean, again, um, it sounds like an education issue. Exactly. Yeah. And, it's, and, it's and a lack of people anyway. interacting with, you know, openly gay people. <laughs> so they have exactly. no understanding yeah. of what that even means. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So big step. Yeah. There's a fantastic <laughs> organization called um, GC, um, which is actually gay Desi, and Desi is a person from of a sub Indian subcontinental origin. Um, and they do, they have a great sort of media platform online, but they also do events and mixers across the country. Um, so last year I actually went to a lot of their things and did some photography for them. And through them, I was able to see that there is a thriving queer community all over the country. Um, it's just everybody part of that community lives a double life. Mm. And that's, that's the, re- and so now it'll be interesting to see whether that double life, like that wall between the two lives will come down or it'll take another generation. I don't know. Wow. That's, it's interesting and exciting. Um, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's finally moving in the right direction, even if it doesn't happen overnight. So it's good. Exactly. It's progress. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, cool. All right. Well, your company, Diaspora Co., is, is it, I mean, it's a turmeric company, but are there, are there other spices you sell, or is it primarily just turmeric at this point? Right now, right now, it's just turmeric. And um, I was actually talking to a friend yesterday, describing it, like, this started almost as, like, a really dystopian art project um, <laughs> by a like very that. idealist, messed up artist um, <laughs> who like really wanted to change the world. And now that it's an actual business, I'm having to be like, oh, okay, we need to pivot. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, like what we happens? Working, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think in terms of, I really just wanted to see a change and I wanted to see if what I was dreaming in my head was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of at the one-year mark for the company now. Oh, and congratulations. Thank you. We survived. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to see if it was possible, and I'm kind of at this point where I'm like, okay, it's possible. Um, check. <laughs> yeah, it's happening. <laughs> you can have, like, a wacky, dystopian, wildly idealistic um, company that is based more on social justice than anything else and actually make money. Um, but also it's like, okay, so do you want to continue the art experiment? Um, well, right, because all of a sudden, you know, start painting. <laughs> yeah, you're not just an artist anymore. You're you're an entrepreneur and a CEO and, and a, yeah, uh, a business owner and a boss. Yeah. and it's it's odd and something I'm really having to come to terms with and to take a call on. And I mean, I think the call I've taken is that I want to do it and that I feel, even though I tear my hair out most days of the week, um, I wake up with purpose and I do work that I feel is important even if it if the importance of the day is just packing things into jars (laughs) yeah um Um, well why don't we why don't we like backtrack for a second and you can yeah it would be great if you sort of just outline like the the bullet points of of your mission and like how your company is different from other um, I mean, I know your company, I saw the language like direct trade as opposed to fair trade. So how your company model differs from other ones um, and like what the sort of ethos behind it is. And yeah, why don't we, why don't you lay that out for us? Yeah. If you don't mind. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the first one is that this was born out of seeing the turmeric craze of 2016. Um, I think I saw like a Google trend report in 2016 that was like, turmeric is the hottest thing here um, in food marketing and at the time I was working in food marketing in San Francisco and 
very confused about what was happening because as far as we grew up in India, it's like you being told that you're a woman of color for the first time, or it's like, wait, everybody in my country is my color. Mm. Like, which color are you talking about? Right. So similar with turmeric, you know, I grew up seeing turmeric so woven into the fabric of cooking as a process. Like, was it even cooking if you didn't add, a, like, scoops of spices from the masala dabba? Mm. Probably not. I'm trying um, to think of, like, what that would, like, what the equivalent of that experience would be like for an American person. Like, right. I don't even know, like, moving to another country and having someone announce, like, ketchup is the hot new trend or something really, like that. Yeah, yeah. Like ketchup is going to, like, blow the <laughs> or something. We've just discovered um, ketchup. <laughs> exactly, literally. Or mayonnaise. I mean, yeah, yeah. Mayonnaise can be the butt of all jokes. Total, always. Oh, always, as it should be. <laughs> um, and then I, I give the example all the time. Um, I give, like, tomato analogies all the time where... When people think about spices in America, um, all they have seen so far is the equivalent of like a grocery store tomato, which right. is bread to travel, bread for storage, much more than it's ever bread for flavor. Um, and it's probably been sitting on that shelf in the grocery store for months or years, kind of like those tomatoes that never ever bought and mm. like, what is made of where did you come from <laughs> um, and, and I and I realized like, that's, that's kind of what the spice industry is right now where nobody really knows where spices come from they're just powders um, and then especially when the wellness sun came up and I was like Ooh, okay not only is it just a yellow powder but like this magic powder is going to save me because wellness mm-hmm. and then, and so in 2016, I think I was very confused, and then Trump got elected, and so I felt very alienated, and I was just like, wait, does this country not want people that look like me? Um, or what, what is happening here? And I think around that time, I realized that unless I had a way to work with my culture and like the kind of stories and purpose that I believe in, I didn't see the point in working in marketing here. I didn't see the point in, like, being sent as the oldest child from India to America only to photograph, you know, this really expensive citrus. Um, and so I was really looking for, like, what is purpose and what is my purpose and what can I do that will tie together the things I know in India and kind of feel very strongly about and the American landscape that I have seen. Um, and I kind of had this wild idea at the back of my head that, Hey, what about turmeric? Like, they're obsessed with it now. What if I could find the best stuff ever? Like, I don't care what they're doing with it. They can, like, do a turmeric cleanse for all I care, put, drink turmeric sauces every day. Um, as long as if India is making a lot of money off of that, that sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I moved back to India for a lot of reasons. Um, I had just come out to my family. There, there was a lot going on, but also with this idea at the back of my head that what if I've met a farmer and, and hooked up with him and we could kind of make this happen? And so I started emailing people and I started messaging people. I started calling people and nobody responded. Hmm. Like three months, crickets. Um, a lot of, most of the news is WhatsApp and on WhatsApp you can get reg receipts. And so I could see that everybody was reading my message, but they had no information to respond. Um, and so finally, I basically started showing up places. And that's when, when I mentioned that I was kind of lying to farmers about my age, 
Um, it was often because I had shown up being like, hi, I'm here now. Yeah. So can you talk to me? Um, so then I really needed to be taken seriously. Um, and I basically had very little luck finding standalone farmers that were growing organically themselves. But I found that most farmers didn't have access, even if they were growing organically, they didn't have access to really high quality seed. Um, they usually wanted cash in hand every day. So they didn't have the ability to, you know, sell their crop at the end to their buyer who could, you know, pay them a premium for organic crop. They wanted to sell on the commodity market every day, get cash for dinner every day. Um, so I, I just realized that the system that they had been roped into from colonialism to capitalism had just made this agriculture a very, very sad place. Right. Um, and I think we hear about that a little bit here in the States, that there's some information about the degree of farmer suicides and like the amount of fertilizer runoff India has, but not much. Not much. Um, I've, I've had chefs basically say to me, like, oh, but, like, everything in India is organic, right? Because they're so poor. And I'm just like, oh, what? my God. Like, where are you from? Wow. I, I literally had that being said to me, and I'm, I'm just shocked. Um, like, they can't afford fertilizer? Like, that doesn't make sense. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, come on. Like, what do you think we are? But yeah. then again, I've been asked if I, like, went to school on an elephant. So there's always that. If you went um, to school on an elephant? Yeah, I was, those were <laughs> legitimate questions that were asked to me. It's like, so how did you get to school in your country? Like, and I was like, in, in a school bus. Like, probably a lot nicer than yours. Yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> no, it was an exhibition. It was real nice. Um, but, well, so, I, I digress. Um, uh, eventually, basically, I linked up with um, the scientists at the Indian Institute of Spice Research, which is in Calicut, which Calicut, or which now Kozikode, is kind of the oldest spice port and spice trading port. Mm. Um, so the Indian Institute was set up there about, I want to say almost 30 years ago, and it's very much a post-colonial institute um, that's dedicated to really uplifting spice agriculture in India. Um, and I think meeting with them was my real, like, okay, wait, I need to do this moment because they were the ones who really explained to me that they have been seizing all of these really beautiful heirloom varietal spices for years now and they license those bridles out to farmers. So often they will license it for free or super nominal fee so the farmer now has access to some of the highest quality seed um, or rhizome in this, in this piece of turmeric. Um, but then the farmer doesn't have like this radically different market for it. So even if they're growing single origin bridal beautiful crop, they're still selling it on the commodity market. And so for years they hadn't really been able to find um, kind of buyers who understood the worth of what was being growing, grown and could offer the farmers a premium. Well it and sounds so, like yeah, like they need a publicist. They really deeply, I mean especially because they can't respond to phone calls. Right. So <laughs> like they need to get the um, word out. Like, yeah, they, they need a really great New York PR agent. <laughs> um, like a restaurant PR agent. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the really spicy ones. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I think they looked at me incredulously and were like, well, it looks like you're the missing link. Like, if you marketed this stuff for us, we'd be in business. And yeah. I was like, oh. Um, and I think also the very underfunded government institution and the social justice human and me was like, support them, mm-hmm. find a way. Um, and, I mean, ultimately, they also just 
seemed to be doing the best work where nobody else was growing heirloom crops. Nobody else even knew what that was. Right. Um, nobody had this co- concept of kind of single seed, single variety. Um, mostly, so what they explained to me is that, you know, you've heard about like Saigon cinnamon and Ceylon cinnamon and Aleppo pepper or Malabar pe- pepper corn, yeah. right? Yeah. So those are actually not spice varieties. Those are colonial brand names. So oh, like marketing like, names? Yeah. So like how like oysters how are like the naked cowboy oyster or something like that? I don't know. I, I can give you the example. Of, like It's kind of like calling any leather handbag a Louis Vuitton handbag. Um, oh, like a, just like a generic. Want, yeah. So basically what, what, ha- what I realized is that um, the British in the 1850s wanted to create a luxury good, right? And so spices... In a lot of ways, the whole spice trade was based around creating a luxury food product um, and creating an indicator of class and status. So if you could afford spices, you were um, wealthy and you had money. And so, but they needed to market that. So similar to you know any brand now, mm-hmm. they needed the folks in England to be like, oh yes, like I am drinking this like very exotic rare pepper. Right. And so they would find their favorite locations all over the colony. So, for example, Malabar peppercorn doesn't come from the Malabar coast. Um, the Malabar coast is just like the British's favorite monsoon destination. For the wow. Region. Okay. So literally any pepper that meets a certain size, like they, they take a ruler and they make holes in the ruler of different sizes. If the pepper meets the biggest size, it's a Malabar peppercorn. Hmm. So okay. any indigenous knowledge of, oh, this variety is actually has this flavor profile, this variety has this flavor profile, all of that was lost because the market became centered around these, like, super exoticized, lumped brand names. Right. Um, so in turmeric, for example, the highest quality turmeric was considered, was called Alipi turmeric. Um, and I knew about Alipi because it's a fairly popular tourist destination. And so when I first set out to find, you know, really good turmeric in India, I was like, well, I'll go to Alpi because everybody seems to want Alpi pepper or Alpi turmeric. Mm-hmm. And um, I got there and I kind of got laughed out of town. Uh, there is no Alpi turmeric in Alpi. What? Um, there is none. <laughs> like, Alpi is kind of like saying that you can get, you get the best oysters in Las Vegas. Right. Um uh, like that just makes no sense. Um, there are high-end hotels that have oysters in Las Vegas. Sure, but that's about but it. But they don't uh-huh. come from there. Yeah. Okay, and so I quickly realized that the spice industry in 2018 doesn't look that different from the spice industry in 1850. Um, like none of the names have changed, um, and it's still very much based on like size and color as opposed to flavor and use and you know growth or anything to do with science. <laughs> um, and so what these scientists were telling me is like, we have real science to back up these varietals and we need to create this market so that there's better knowledge over what is being sold and what is being bought and what is being consumed. Um, and I think the Patriot and me was like, okay, I can do this. Um, and so Dr. Kressev, who's the head scientist at ISR, um, ended up kind of matchmaking me to this farmer, this one farmer, who, in retrospect, I think he saw me as this, like, obsessive, fanatic young person who would leave <laughs> him alone. 
And um, the farmer that he matched me to, Prabhu, is actually the exact same thing. Like, Prabhu is 34, so as farmers go, he's very young. Um, he speaks English. He is super active on WhatsApp. He found um, the Indian Institute of Science Research, but he didn't find him. And he went to them being like, look, I want to make money farming for a chain, mm-hmm. and I think there should be a premium for spices. I've heard that you guys have the turmeric, so give it to me and tell me what to do. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and the first year, he actually didn't have a market for his turmeric. Like, he was able to kind of give it away in bits, but he didn't have any like, high-end buyers at the price that he really deserved. Um, so I think Dr. Prasad, the scientist, was getting a bit frustrated with all of Prabhu's emails and was like, okay, you know, take her. Yeah. Like, y'all deserve each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we win-win. Do. We really do deserve each other. Yeah. Um, Sana, we're going to take a quick break just to hear from yeah, our sponsor absolutely. and then we'll be back and, and then we have a few more minutes to keep hearing this amazing story. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Surchois was named World Champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I am Sari Kamen, your host, and I have been speaking with Sana Javari Kadri. She is the founder of Diaspora Co. She's on the line with me, uh, calling in from the Bay Area in Oakland. Um, and she has been telling me the absolutely incredible story about how she started her company, Diaspora Co. So, hey, Sana, um, we yeah. have about 10 more minutes, so let's, let's keep going. I, I'm just riveted by this. So. If you don't mind just picking up where you left off, you're in Mumbai and you got matched up with a turmeric farmer over there. Yeah. Um, so got matched up, got on a very tiny airplane and walked over. Um, he was pretty much, uh, Prabhu, who I didn't know at the time, was notoriously bad at responding to my phone calls. And so finally I was just like, okay, once again, I'm just going to go. Um, and when I showed up, uh, I mean, firstly, I was sitting with we were in Vijayawada, Andhra Pradesh, and Vijayawada is um, on the eastern side of the country, and Mumbai is the west, mm-hmm. so two completely different coasts. It was a really lush, incredible landscape, unlike anything I've seen before. Um, and one of the first things Prabhu said to me is he was like, you know, I care really deeply about the quality of the soil and 
about farming so that my land continues, you know, to be productive and also healthy. And I am dedicated to really doing this the most natural, gentle way. And I really want a buyer who cares about that. So if I have a buyer who doesn't care about that, I'd actually rather not sell to you. And after having visited all of these farms all over South India where people had been trying to trick me into buying things, people had been lying to me about things, to have this farmer, like, one of the first things he said to me was this, where, like, I don't really, you know, need to buy, like, sell to you if you don't care about these things or share the same values I do was very, very, very shocking and refreshing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's quite where we realize, like, oh, I think we really do deserve each other. <laughs> yeah. um, from one, like, obsessive quality fanatic to the other. Um, and, I mean, I realized, like, for the first couple of years that he was doing this and someone he switched to organic, the entire village regarded him as completely crazy. Like, he was a young guy who might have lost his mind because he could have deserved Yeah, crazy for dad. trusting you and putting his faith in you. Yeah, I mean, one trusting me could have his faith in me, which is Amanda who showed up, um, but also who put his faith into not using fertilizer and pesticides mm. when nobody in his village would do that. Um, all of them were just like, no, 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 there's no way. Like, nobody has done that before. Oh, of course, right. people had done that before, but just so many generations ago. Well, um, why, why is he so committed to organic? I mean, why does he have that value system in place so if no one else does? We can, well, we should definitely ask probably in January, but yeah. <laughs> um, I, my, my gut feeling from what I know of him has been that he saw how his grandfather and father's way of farming wasn't making them money, and he got to kind of see their arc of having a huge yield one year and then complete losses the next two years, and then the soil being completely shot for the next year after that. Um, he was watching this process and I think he's a bit of a problem solver of like this shouldn't be happening or like this doesn't make sense um, and they were leasing some of their land to tobacco farmers um, or tobacco companies to grow tobacco so he was seeing firsthand how depleted the soil was getting um, compared to and he, he always makes comparisons to the stuff that they farm just for their home use versus the stuff that they farm commercially and he kept saying, you know, but that was never happening with our home, like with our home plot. Like that plot, we intercropped, we never used pesticides, and it's, it's been doing well for years. And so I think he, he was just observing and wanting to find that, that different system for his family. Um, and then he had the kind of privilege where his parents sent him to the city to get education. So he didn't stay in the village his whole life went very far away actually on the west coast of the country near to me very near to me compared to how far away it is from him mm-hmm. um, so I think also coming to a big faraway city and being exposed to very different ideas and being like oh like I come from a farming background but what what are people in the city saying about farming these days um, I think that's when he started to hear a little bit about, about organic agriculture yeah so he had perspective that sort of empowered him to challenge the status quo exactly yeah and he also then had the privilege to be like actually uh, as the oldest boy I'm going to take over some of this and do it my way and y'all are going to let me yeah yeah um the one thing I'd just love to hear you talk about before we have to come to the end is 
uh, I was reading the Munchies article um, that Mayuk Sen <laughs> wrote, and it's oh, it's yeah, he was on the show. We love Mayuk. Um, <laughs> just the experience, and I think you and Mayuk have this shared experience. What it was like for you when you first encountered the turmeric latte in a coffee shop? Like how bizarre that was. <laughs> I mean, I would just oh, love yeah. to hear it in your own words because it's it's yeah, really vivid. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and then the first turmeric latte I had, I I took a sip, I spat it out quite literally, and then <laughs> I threw the rest of the the cup into the trash. Um, <laughs> that was it. I was done, and I felt so cheated because it was also like one of those sandwiches full like seven dollar lattes. Um, and here I was, 23, and being told that, you know, what I had drunk my whole life and this disgusting, ver- disgusting version of it was somehow worth $7. Um, so I, I just found the whole experience jarring. And actually, then, that was maybe in uh, early 2017, and I have effectively avoided a term latte since then. I mean, I'm sure it's it's not hard to avoid if you're not seeking it out. <laughs> I don't know. When you were in those wellness circles, you'd be surprised at the turmeric products that you can find. I mean, I I believe it's pretty pervasive. I have I have seen it often, but I've I've never had one. There's now like a, a turmeric um, cookie butter spread that somebody sent me a link to, and I was just like, why? Why take a perfectly wonderful thing that cooks better? And a perfectly decent thing like turmeric and put them together. Yeah. Like take find your wellness elsewhere. <laughs> um, I mean was that I mean, as a bit of a mm-hmm. No, I was just gonna say was that um, was was having that latte or like just being aware of I don't know, the the way turmeric has been appropriated in such bizarre ways, was that part of the motivation for starting a turmeric company? Absolutely, but I think I, and I, I've said, said this a few times before, usually, you know, I'm Indian and grew up in, in India, so my experience is never one of being an Indian American, which is a very valid but different experience. And so I never had this experience of my food made fun of, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an immigrant child experience that your food is made fun of, and then you see it being appropriated. Um, and that's where the anger lies. And I think for me, it was more just what is happening with these people and so I am often I'm not up to mind that hey like because it's appropriate and Canada's successful and mostly disgusting for me I'm off the mind of like you know where it's coming from you know who you're paying like are you questioning some assumptions about it um cool then you can really consume whatever you want um, that yeah. means that I will not be supporting any of those things. Well, is your feeling like as as long as you're sourcing turmeric in an ethical and sustainable way, like you don't really care if people put it in a latte or, or like, would you be upset That's, if you found out I someone did that? So. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we wholesale to a turmeric latte company. And, yeah. you know, one of my biggest um, gripes with starting this company was the mammoth of the wellness industry that is Goop. Going right. to Foster's I was, media company. Yeah, I think about that. You when know, I, that I, was your next, like, Goop drives us up. Yeah. But Goop now drinks our turmeric. Isn't that funny? Oh, really? So the turmeric latte man that consumes every day is made with our turmeric. Oh, that's awesome. It me up on the daily. Um, <laughs> so for me, it's like, cool, you know, Goop's turmeric habit is paying the livelihood of farmers in India. Yeah. 
great. Yeah. I'm down. Drink as much thermos as you want. Right? <laughs> you weirdos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, that's great, and I and I love your sense of humor about it, and it does make sense. Yeah. Um, well, why don't you tell us where we can find you on the internet and keep up with yeah. uh, the progress of Diaspora and order the turmeric. Totally. So our website is diaspora.com, um, and that's when you can find our online store um, and also actually our newsletter. And I think that our newsletter is different in that we are just as a company so unproduct oriented, where we have reading lists and we have recipes and we interview people. So we're very proud of our newsletter. It's a bit of a baby, a pet project. That's awesome. Um, and and then, I hope you'll, you'll share then, the show. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad it's going out to the after tomorrow. So we got you. Yay. <laughs> um, and then um, we also on Instagram as the after show. And that's a great place to keep up with the day to day. We're pretty good at our hashtag content. For sure. Um, cool. Well, thank you, Sana, so much for taking this time. And it was great to chat with you and learn more about your company. And like I said before, you're, you're such an inspiration and it's so cool to talk to someone who's like just making shit happen and changing the world. So congratulations oh, thanks on- Thanks so much for having yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, it was a pleasure. And um, I'm not gonna make a turmeric latte, but I am excited <laughs> to try your turmeric. <laughs> um, so thank you and thanks everyone for tuning in this week. Check us out on heritageradionetwork.org or on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And we'll see you next week, Wednesday at 6 p.m. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.